Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this uh, debate uh, this evening. As most of you know, one year ago this week, the European Union agreed to provide Greece with a loan facility of 110 billion euros. It was to cover a developing sovereign debt crisis. The loan was unprecedented. Greece was the first euro state to receive uh, such help. The loan was provided by EU national governments and the International Monetary Fund, as the European Central Bank uh, was prevented uh, from providing uh, such help uh, by the Maastricht Treaty. At the same time, the loan uh, came with a memorandum, a now infamous memorandum, of conditions that Greece would have to meet to continue to receive each instalment of the loan. These conditions were to be monitored by the European Union Commission, by the European Central Bank, and by the IMF, the so-called Troika. So for the last year, Greece has faced quarterly loan installments, and the physical presence of a Troika office in Athens evaluating uh, Greece's economic performance. Today, many observers see the Greek loan and those later negotiated with Ireland and Portugal as being crucial to the survival of the euro system as we know it. The adjustments made by each of the three countries, therefore, are of importance not only to their domestic audiences, but also to the European Union and perhaps its most prized policy projects. So it's appropriate at this point, this week, to stop and reflect on whether the loan to Greece is achieving its purpose. Is Greece undertaking the right re reforms? Is Greece undertaking the reforms fast enough? And we should also, of course, look beyond the present to the medium and long term. Greece's ability to remain part of the Eurozone will depend in part on its growth prospects. The rate of growth will affect the debt ratio, of course. Our panel tonight is a trio of experts on this uh, subject, and we are delighted that they've each agreed to participate. Professor Euclides uh, Polymakakis is a professor of economics from the University of Warwick. He gained his degree from Yale and uh, also from Harvard. He was previously a professor at Columbia University in New York and at Louvain in Belgium. Professor Costas Magia is Professor of Economics from the University College uh, London. He's also co-director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies here in London. Uh, sadly for us, he's about to move to be a Professor of Economics in Yale. Professor Nikos Grisadlakis is a Professor of Economics from the Athens University of Economics and Business. He gained his PhD in Economics from the University of Cambridge. During the government of Kostas Dimitis, he held various public positions. In particular, of course, he was Minister of National Economy from the year 2001 to 2004 as Greece made its adjustments to life in the Eurozone. I'm very pleased to say that uh, Professor Christodoulakis will be the chairman of the panel uh, tonight. I'm going to join you in the audience uh, in a moment. Uh, the format is that uh, Professor Christodoulakis will say one or two words uh, by way of his own introduction. Uh, he will then be followed by Professor Costas McGear, 
uh, and then by Professor Polymakakis. They will each speak for up to 20 minutes or so, which will then allow us plenty of time as an audience to make contributions, questions, and comments uh, from the audience. So my job is now done. I simply ask you to join me in giving a very warm welcome to our three uh, guests this evening. Thank you for coming. One year after the bailout took place uh, in May 2010, uh, everybody at the time thought that uh, that was uh, an inevitable choice for the government, but uh, 12 months uh, of its application has sparked a lot of doubt about its efficiency and even more doubts in scenario how this is going to continue. For example, I think that uh, there are two major issues uh, surrounding uh, the efficacy of the program and the way it is uh, going to continue. The memorandum which started uh, 12 months ago assumed that uh, uh, a fiscal rehabilitation is uh, the first priority. But 12 months after its implementation, we see that revenues are uh, stagnant despite the fact that uh, there has been a huge increase in VAT rate and also uh, two or three emergency lump sum taxes. Uh, I think uh, that uh, we have a typical uh, laffer curve effect here, and I'm sure that uh, the two professors we have together with us are going to explain how this happened. The second issue uh, that was pledged by the memorandum was that uh, the reforms uh, that would be implemented uh, would uh, push the economy forward. But uh, although we have seen quite a lot of effort spent by the government to this effect, we didn't see any serious inducement of growth coming out. The missing factor of the story is growth. If one takes into account uh, the recession uh, in 2009 and 2010 and uh, the continuation of the recession this year, we'll see that by the end of this year, the Greek economy will shrink by about 12%, which is a huge amount. Actually, this is the worst case uh, that has happened in Greece after the war. And Greece has uh, the fatal privilege of being the only country in the European Union with third year in recession. Almost every, every other country has escaped recession after one year. So I think that uh, all these uh, 
uh, issues uh, put some uh, very agonizing questions. First of all, there is a huge question about the social cohesion of the country. We see increasing phenomena of uh, disobedience, uh, closures of uh, enterprises, mass playoffs, and uh, there is a lot of uncertainty accumulating in Greek society. The second is that, uh, apart from the reform fatigue, which, which has become uh, very fashionable as of recently, we also see a kind of institutional fatigue take place in Greece, with the public administration, for example, underperforming, and uh, a growing concern of how future reforms are going to be implemented. Uh, we also see that uh, markets, international markets, are fretting about the uh, prospects of uh, the Greek fiscal situation. And uh, day after day, they come out scenario about restructuring or maturity extension and all these kinds of things. So uh, we're here to discuss uh, all these issues, all these questions. The primary question is how growth can resume. And, of course, if we answer this question, the inevitable question which has to follow is why growth did not happen in the first place? Was it a lack of imagination by the policymakers? Was it a lack of determination by uh, policy doers or what? And uh, I'm sure that uh, you will agree with me that uh, without growth, every other effort, either with the memorandum or outside it, is going to fail. So growth today becomes a critical factor of how the economic situation in Greece uh, will be in the future. I'm delighted that uh, we have two distinguished speakers uh, with us tonight, and uh, immediately I give the floor to Professor McGill to tell us uh, his thoughts about this. Hmm. So I have to find. Yes, I can't just, I can't. Ah, yes, I managed. Well, um, uh, first of all, uh, 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 a lot of thanks to uh, Professor uh, uh, Kevin Featherstone and to uh, Professor Christodoulakis for his uh, introductory comments, which actually really uh, take me exactly uh, where I want to be when I, when I start uh, talking. And uh, you might kind of guess from my title where uh, I'll, be, uh, uh, I'll be going, because I agree with a lot of the, of the, of the comments of uh, Professor Christodoulakis. We were... Uh, in a room close, close by here about, I think, one and a half, two years ago, talking about the Greek crisis. And then, and then at that time, the real huge controversy was whether Greece should lower itself to accept any loans from the uh, evil IMF. I think we've really gone past that. But at that time, it was almost a revolutionary idea 
that uh, that Greece could stoop so low and uh, and obtain uh, loans from the IMF. Now we're in a different position. We're in a position that uh, that says, was that enough? Now, uh, in order to be able to uh, to to uh, answer some of these questions, I really do feel I have to take you a little bit back to um, uh, to to how we got there. I think it's it's very important to put things in context. So first of all, where are we? We are saddled with uh, huge debts. I think. It's at the moment calculated, if you factor in the, the new loans and you factor in the, the, the new levels of deficit and the decline in GDP, I think we're talking about 160, 165% of, of GDP of debt. Uh, we have no access to financial markets uh, unless we really want to borrow uh, uh, at, uh, at uh, 1,300 basis points above the, above the German interest rate that puts us around 16, 16%. Uh, so I don't think you know, that's effectively... Uh, cut off from financial markets, which of course immediately says that Greece is in a default position at, at present. So we shouldn't kind of uh, uh, blind ourselves in thinking that, we've, that we are not in a default position. We are. Uh, the structure, th there's a deep recession, which was already mentioned, uh, which of course adds the problems of sustainability of debt. And the structure of the Greek economy and institutional framework makes it uh, one of the least productive uh, economies in the, in the EU. I think only Bulgaria has, uh, has less productivity than, uh, than Greece. So that's, I guess, you know, the, the good things about expanding the EU. Uh, we've eventually found somebody uh, of lower productivity. Um, there is reform fatigue, but um, I think as, um, as we were discussing with Iraklis just now, there's no reform fatigue, there is a resurgent intolerance to, to reform. Uh, the, 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 the Greek citizens never saw a real reason to reform what they felt was a quite uh, comfortable uh, institutional uh, framework with a lot of worker protection and uh, huge state pensions and so on. Uh, so uh, perhaps reform fatigue is not the right term, but um, uh, reform intolerance is coming back. So how, how did we get there? Was it always like that? This is a bit of uh, history. If we go, let's go first of all to the deficit. If we go to the 60s and 70s, that's the average deficits. Actually, in the 60s, we had surpluses. In the 70s, we had a 1% deficit. That's very healthy. You need to borrow a bit to invest for future generations. Infrastructure should be spread across generations. This is what happened to the deficit in the 80s, 90s, and the noughties, right? So out of control. And this is what happened to debt-to-GDP ratio. It, it went from a pretty healthy uh, 25 to 30% of GDP uh, in 1980 to, um, uh, in 2009, so pre-crisis kind of, uh, uh, well, just beginning of crisis levels, at around 120% of, uh, of, uh, of GDP. And now it's heading to 160 was that all invested? No. The investment part of GDP declined. Consumption increased. These were handouts. Doubling agricultural pensions, hiring people in the public sector, uh, handouts before every election, and so on. So it's a pretty bleak picture of a systematic deterioration of the underlying uh, uh, underlying uh, figures in the Greek economy. 
So the Greek crisis is not a crisis of the financial markets. It's a crisis that was eventually revealed and came to a head because of the financial market crisis. You can see also how uh, external debt increased enormously. In the, in, the, in the 90s, we still had a lot of transfers from abroad. Part of it EU, part of it, uh, uh, I guess, workers and, uh, and shipping. Uh, in, the, in the 2000s, uh, our, our trade balance is still as negative as it was, even more negative. And yet, uh, net borrowing increased a lot from abroad, and, tr and net transfers uh, from abroad just declined, worsening the situation. The Greek economy was becoming less and less competitive. And now, locked into the EU, it had no way of correcting that uh, through some depreciation. I just want to point out part of the problem. Part of the problem, of course, is that Greece is unable to raise income tax, to raise tax revenue. This is the key number here. While the average EU27 country raises about 13% of, uh, of GDP in taxes, with approximately the same, more or less, tax system, it's not, Gre uh, Greece only raises 8%. Just that difference was enough to cover the deficit in the public uh, finances in 2007. And that figure is not improving, as Professor Stodulakis uh, implied. Yeah. Now, the other thing that's happened, the increase in VAT does not seem to be translating into increased revenues, whether that's because the recession has meant that even, we have even less demand, uh, or uh, whether it means that uh, the informality sector is increasing, uh, that's something that remains to, remains to be seen, but it's a really serious situation because uh, despite the, the, the big government efforts now to raise revenues, revenues are not going up. So, Greece's public sector actually is not particularly large. It is very large, but it's not particularly larger than the average EU country. So you might think it's large because you might believe in an economy with a small public sector, but that, when you compare it to other European countries, that's not the smoking gun. What's the smoking gun is the excessively low productivity of this public sector. Uh, I have a couple of examples here. For example, uh, the PISA scores, that's the scores of performance in education, are the third lowest in the OECD. However, we have, one, we have the highest teacher-to-student ratio in the OECD. Of course, because these people are just hired. They're people who don't do particularly well in their studies. They register their names for being hired as teachers. They are hired as teachers. They never want to be teachers. They don't have any particularly good training. The result is bad education and huge expenditure. Uh, relative to our GDP, we have half as many universities in the top 500. Now, these are just examples. Examples are everywhere. The judiciary, uh, uh, the health system, whatever. In addition, Greece is ranked as the most corrupt country in the EU. Transparency Inter International has a kind of, a, uh, a, let's call it a transparency index that is lowest, lower than, uh, it has to be, low is bad in this context, lower than Romania, lower than Bulgaria. Now, one of these manifestations, of course, is tax evasion. And this reduces the tax base and shifts the tax burden. Now, the problem with tax evasion is not only a revenue problem, it's a problem of distortion of the economy because it's an effective subsidy 
to activities that are not easily visible by the taxman. So it shifts the activity towards what I think are low-tech and low-growth activities. People say that uh, we don't have to worry about deregulation of, say, the labor market uh, for large companies because we do not have large companies in, the, in, in Greece. Well, exactly. We do not have large companies because we price them out. We price them out both with the tax system and the regulatory framework. The justice system is incredibly inefficient. It takes, on average, about 820 days to resolve a commercial dispute. Uh, the average OECD is not that small. It's still 520, but it's not 820. That means that you have an economy where the contracts cannot be enforced by law, by the law courts. And when you cannot enforce contracts, an economy cannot operate properly. Uh, Greece has one of, the, uh, uh, one of the most rigid labor markets. Part of this uh, is reflected in the fact that there's very low female participation, uh, lowest than, uh, uh, much lower than the average EU-19, low part-time work, but look at this, very high hours. Greeks who work, work a lot of hours, and they are very unproductive. That's the problem. We have 70% of productivity per hour relative to the rest of the EU, not the EU25, uh, the EU19. Now, I'll come back to this in a little while, because I need to advance. At this point, we have to address what's going to happen. We, a group of us, uh, uh, Dimitris uh, uh, Vajanos, Nikos Vetas, and I wrote an article in the FT and, and uh, quite a lot of stuff in the Greek press arguing that with a systematic set of reforms, Greece need not restructure or a default on any of its debts. Perhaps we were um, uh, a bit romantic. Perhaps we had uh, greater faith in the, in the, in the willingness of, uh, of, of Greek society to reform. Uh, but what seems to be the case now is that we're reaching a point where we have uh, continuing and deepening recession, not deepening, but continuing a recession at a very deep level. We have uh, uh, an increase in tolerance to reform, uh, and, uh, and we have almost a breakdown of social cohesion, as, uh, 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 as Professor Stodulakis just, uh, just mentioned. So we need to rethink this. Now, I don't like to put this in writing, but I'll just, I'll just mention it for, uh, for graphic effect we would have all been much better off if the debts and reparations imposed on Germany after the First World War had been forgiven. It is not always the case that you want to uh, drive the debtor to the ground till you squeeze every last penny. Sometimes all parties are better off if they agree to reduce the debt because this improves the position of the uh, uh, of both parties, effectively, because one side is going to produce more and, uh, uh, and will be able to repay at least a decent proportion uh, of the other side. This is the position that we are taking. Now, let me just try and justify this position and also try and address the issue of incentives and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and what Greece has to give in return. First of all, at present, when we equilibrate around 160, 165% of GDP, we will be paying 
10% of GDP every year in interest. Most of that abroad, or a large proportion. Some of it to Greek banks, but a large proportion abroad. So there will be a continuous uh, bloodletting from the Greek economy. Indeed, in order to service the debt, Greece has to run at least a 3% surplus every year, assuming we end up with a, with a growth rate of 3%, which is completely far off at the moment. At the moment, we have a decline of 7 So, basically, we're in a situation that, de facto, we're not really solvent. Now, we do not want a default situation, because that will be completely catastrophic for everybody. We do not want Greece to wake up one morning and say, I'm not paying anymore. There will be bank runs. The Greek banks will, uh, will go under. Credit will disappear, both from the Greek banks and from abroad. And there might be a Lehman ki kind of effect on, uh, uh, induced from sovereign debt. That does not imply that an orderly and agreed restructuring is not on the table and on the cards and a feasible solution to work things through. So instead of limping ahead, trying to service an unmanageable situation and trying at the same time to keep people calm with, uh, uh, with huge amounts of police forces in the street, we really need to, to, to take a much more constructive and creative way forward. There is also intergenerational, you know, people of course will talk about moral hazard, and it's of course a, a very valid point. Uh, however, there are, as I said, extraordinary circumstances where, you know, exposed, you have to forgive part of the debt. You must not also, we must not also forget that those who are called to pay the debt are not those who have benefited from these huge uh, deficits of the 80s and the 90s. It's the young generation who has to repay what the old generation uh, enjoyed. Now, how should this be done? The Eurozone countries need to accept that there should be approximately a 50% haircut and then a restructuring of the rest of the debt to make it longer term. I believe they can afford this, and they can afford to do this for Portugal as well. I also believe that Spain is fundamentally solvent. So I do not believe that this will lead to a, to a chain reaction uh, requiring the equivalent support for a country like Spain with only 60% of debt-to-GDP uh, ratio there. I think there uh, the issue is not an issue of solvency but more of a liquidity, and when uh, growth returns to Spain, they'll be able to service that. Now, there will be losers. As I said, chaos can be avoided by a firm stance by the EU governments to support parts of the financial system. Foreign banks will lose some, but that's fine. They take risks, they should lose. Otherwise, what's the point of, uh, of, of choosing Greek debt, which had a bit of a, a premium on the, other, uh, on the other countries? It was not underwritten. So some losses there can be taken and can be absorbed. Greece, uh, the Greek debt is not that huge in terms of EU GDP. Some losses by private investors are fully justified. They took risks. However, Greek banks, which have uh, large investments in Greek bonds, partly because they were asked to buy them, will need support, both to maintain their capital adequacy ratio, to avoid a run, and to keep credit running in the Greek economy. 
If banks are not supported, uh, uh, credit will disappear. Now, the other side of the coin. What do we give for all this and what do we expect to gain? Clearly, this is not, to be, not supposed to be a, a, a yet another party for the politicians to, uh, uh, to, to, to have tons of money to, to give out in, in handouts. The haircut must not be outright forgiven. They should be transformed to bonds written under English law. Excuse this minor detail, but it's extremely important. Uh, held by the EU and accumulating interest. What English law buys you is that the bonds are effectively enforceable in English courts. No Greek, uh, no, no Greek government can just uh, decide to default on them and, um, uh, and, uh, because the, the, the foreign courts would then be able to freeze at least foreign assets. Which is not the case now. Which is not the case now because apparently 90% of debt is Greek. Yeah. Yes, they can do anything they like. Anything. Which means they can also do this. <laughs> so, then this, this debt will be held by the European Central Bank and a list of reforms will be agreed with timelines. I will go through what reforms I think are important. These ref as these reforms are implemented, the Central Bank will return the bonds to, to Greece for giving parts of the debt. If the Greek government decides to default on its obligations, then the bonds become active again, and Greece will really default. We need a very strong incentive mechanism, otherwise politicians will, excuse the expression, uh, metaphorically run off with the money. This is a debate. Can I ask a question here? Yes. Question. If Greece does not fulfill its obligations under your scheme, yes. and you say then it defaults, Yes. But it defaults now towards the ECB, not towards the banks. That's yes, that's true. Okay, so the, the ECB the, the, the is willing to take. This. No, the ECB, the ECB will have re, will have received the equivalent money from the effectively from the governments to support these bonds. Now, why? Why do we want to do this? This will, of course, alleviate the pressure on public finances. With, uh, and will allow funding of the transitional costs of reforms. Many of the reforms that Greece needs have medium to long-term benefits and upfront costs. How do you overhaul an education system without investing in it? Of course, the educated kids are not going to be productive for another 10, 15, 20 years, depending on who we're talking about. How do you overhaul a labor market without offering some kind of social insurance? So you've got the upfront costs, but you've got the longer-term flexibility of benefits. How do you create a pension scheme that is funded, via, uh, and, and, but, but is kind of has tax breaks up, up front without being able to account for these tax breaks in the public finances? None of this can happen reasonably now without, uh, uh, because of the debt overhang. How do you reinvent a judicial system without any funds? because Greece does not effectively have a an, a, a, an operational judicial system. So let me just give you four sectors of reform that I think are important, and then I'll close at that. First of all, the public sector and the judiciary has to be completely overhauled. 
Uh, you need, we need, first of all, we need transparency. We need performance indicators that show what the public sector and what the judiciary is doing. Is the police solving crimes? How many crimes are they processing? Are the schools producing kids that know anything? Are the judges solving any cases? Okay. We need to abolish tenure for public sector employees. This is an anachronism. We need to improve quality of appointments and monitoring at a very, very deep level. And of course, incentives and all that. On the labor market, how can we attract foreign investment when at the moment after the, the recent reforms, you cannot fire more than 4% of the labor force in any one month? The, the Greek institutional framework makes it easier for a firm to go bankrupt than to adjust the size of its workforce. This cannot be a good, um, a, a good way of attracting investment. What we basically need in Greece is just an unfair dismissals and, uh, safety, and health, sa safety and health regulations, nothing else. And even unfair dismissals, should be, uh, they should be redressed in courts, which by then, of course, will be working because of our wonderful reforms up here, uh, but there should not be a forced reinstatement of the, of the workers. There should be competition in the, in the product markets and the service markets. So this opening up of professions has to continue. It's, it's basically stopped and compromises have been, uh, have, have been generated like the profit margins of pharmacies. Why? Why all these vested interests? There's no point. We don't need them. Education has to be completely overhauled. I've been talking about this ever since I wrote uh, a report for the, for the Greek government with, uh, with colleagues, uh, uh, George Kupis and, uh, and, and others, when we, uh, when we talked about overhauling the education system and the labor market back in um, uh, just, just after 2004. We need an excellent early education uh, system. All countries uh, uh, around the world are looking at early childhood development from Chile to the US to Africa. Only in Greece we don't seem to have that, uh, that debate. We need to decentralize and, uh, and, and, and introduce performance measurements. We need to allow schools to hire and fire teachers according to performance. And we need competition among schools. Kids should be able to change schools, and when they change schools in the public sector, they should take their funding with them to induce competition. And, if fa and, and failing schools should be closed down. We need a pension scheme, a proper pension scheme, not just increasing the pension age from 58 to 63 to 65 to 67. In a, in a, in a modern democracy, people have to have the option to choose when to retire at their own expense, not, of course, at the expense of anybody else. So we need a, a fully funded scheme that offers, uh, uh, w uh, where people can invest in tax-exempt accounts. Anybody who lives in the U.S. or the U.K. knows exactly what, uh, uh, what we mean. And, of course, you need some kind of a social insurance scheme there uh, for low-income individuals. We need a health system that op operates. So, you know, unless, unless you're... Uh, uh, so, as, as we know, in, in Greece we're supposed to have a, private, uh, a public scheme, but we don't really. You know, people bribe doctors to, to take care of them and, uh, and so on, the, the famous Brian envelopes. Basically, we need to privatize hospital management or even privatize hospitals completely and introduce mandatory health insurance uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to generate a new active 
properly working health system. We can't go into details how you design that. These are, of course, important things. And why do I say that? Are these important? Yes, because they're elements of a modern economy that is productive, that serves its, uh, its, uh, its citizens well. It's not only about public finances and the labor market. It is about having uh, proper services that support human capital. My conclusions. Uh, Greece is insolvent. There is urgent need to recognize this and to address it. Large parts of the debt need to be forgiven or restructured. Forgiving the debt will make deep reforms a more realistic possibility, but debt forgiveness has to be linked with reform in a credible and enforceable way. That's all. Thank you very much, uh, Professor McGill, for the uh, very analytic uh, speech uh, you gave uh, on what Greece needs uh, to do, and also for the historical data that uh, you brought to our attention. Uh, I noticed that uh, one uh, uh, thing you mentioned, the restructuring conditionality, is a very novel idea which I'm sure will be discussed later on. Now I give the floor to Heraklis Polymarchakis to give us uh, his views on uh, what Greece should do in order to return to growth. No, no, this is, that's what you added. I didn't say this. Okay, so, uh, okay, so, uh, so it's my turn to thank Professor Featherstone uh, and the organizers for uh, setting up this academic debate. And in expressing my thanks I cannot help but at the same time have a, uh, a sad, make the sad realization that such a debate takes place here, uh, but it does not, it doesn't take place in Greece. Uh, and that says something uh, about the situation that's probably more important than uh, numbers or other uh, realizations. Nevertheless, it's an academic debate. Uh, an academic uh, debate is a bit of a dangerous exercise uh, because there is a distinction that we do emphasize in academia, and I think we should emphasize, between things that are debatable and interesting and things that are important. You know? Some important issues don't necessarily lend themselves to interesting debates. Uh, so, as you are debating, we should keep in mind that uh, the situation is important for, in the sense that it is the welfare and the dignity of 10 million people that are involved. Um, and that's something that we should keep in mind in uh, discussing uh, these issues. So, is there anything to debate about? My point is that Professor Meyer went through a list of reforms. I think most of us would agree uh, that these reforms are necessary. We can discuss the issue uh, of the restructuring. Um, my first observation is that there is very little to debate. I think there is agreement as to what is to be done. Uh, and the issue is why it is not being done. Now, let's take the questions one by one. The restructuring. Now, it has taken uh, center stage of the discussion. In the public discourse in Greece, restructuring is uh, the word of the day. Uh, and I'm not sure this is, uh, this is correct. 
I don't think it's the major problem the country faces right now. I'm not disputing the, uh, the arithmetic uh, that Professor Magir put up, but it is not an issue for the very short run. For the very short run, it is well, we, know, we all know that the funding requirements of Greece are covered for the next two or three years by the uh, memorandum. As a, as a friend of mine who works in a hedge fund, I should admit, pointed out, he said that's the wrong time for Greece to restructure since they are still getting more money in than they are paying out. So if they want to restructure, they should wait for the moment when they, when they start paying out more than they are getting in. You understand Greece does not have a primary, does not have a primary surplus yet. If you don't have a primary surplus, it means that you are getting more in okay, than, than you are paying out. So it's the wrong time uh, to restructure. And there is a sense also in which Greece is too small to fail. It will create too much of a disruption for the financial system uh, if it is allowed to fail, and in particular if it fails in an unorderly way, uh, then uh, the cost that would be involved in allowing Greece through help from the European Union and the International Monetary Fund to finance its deficit, even if, even for a period beyond uh, the period of the date of 2012 or 2013, until which the obligations are already covered. Now, so I'm going to leave the restructuring aside. I'm going to leave it aside, as I said, because the needs are covered until 2012. As long as the European Union is convinced to provide the necessary support for the banks and the additional funding that will be required after 2012 for another three-year period, I think the IMF would be willing to provide support, provided they see reforms being undertaken in the right direction. So I don't think that restructuring is the issue to be concerned with right now. So let's go back, let's go to the questions concerning the standby arrangement and the infamous uh, the memorandum. I think it was unavoidable. Uh, one, we can start asking, uh, we can pose questions as to whether it became unavoidable in October 2009 or in March 2010. I think in retrospect these are details. Uh, if one looks at the numbers for the long period prior to 2009 and where the country found itself in the end of 2009-2010, uh, recourse to the standby arrangement was not, there was no alternative. It had to be done. And we should, it is true that there was a reaction, there was a negative reaction towards the idea of the IMF at the time. Uh, there were quotes uh, of, uh, there were even, I heard people mention that when uh, some Greek uh, delegation uh, mentioned the possibility of going to the IMF, um, Sarkozy is supposed to have said this is not Botswana, so that's, uh, probably shows you the kind of understanding that he has of the situation, but uh, anyway, so I think it was, uh, it was unavoidable, and one should not make the mistake of comparing what the memorandum did or what it does with what we would have liked the situation to be. I think one should compare the situation post-memorandum with what the situation would have been without the memorandum in March 2010. Now. What is the content of the memorandum? The memorandum had two components. One was the fiscal consolidation that we spoke about. Spend less, collect more taxes, reduce the deficit. That was one component. 
The other component was the, uh, a list of structural reforms that were supposed to take place, and I think they can all be summarized by one phrase, which is the elimination of local monopolies. It can be, it can be pharmacists, it can be truck drivers, uh, it can be uh, whatever other union controls uh, the railroads. The latest that I heard is that the average rev income of people that work in the National Railway, or say, you know, the National Railway Company, is over 7,000 euros a month. That's what I mean by local monopolies. Okay, so. Now, is the memorandum working? And let's take the components one by one. The macro component, what do I mean by the macro component? Output and employment. Output has gone down by 12% cumulatively if you want. Unemployment is worse, but it is not that far off what the memorandum had predicted. The fiscal side is worse. Uh, indeed, revenue has stalled and the situation is getting critical. But things are much worse when it comes to reforms. The reforms, uh, it is widely accepted that at best they are only made on paper. Uh, and one asks, wants to ask why. I think the answer is clear. Uh, I'm not sure that I share Kostas' um, assessment of the, of the popular opposition to these uh, reforms, uh, but I think that clearly there is opposition on behalf of a large part of the Socialist Party and even members of the government. I think PASOK is finding it hard to get rid of the, probably the appropriate word is paternalistic, what was Papandreou's book called? Paternalistic capitalism? Yes, it was paternalistic capitalism. I think it is the paternalistic socialism that was imposed uh, by PASOK, that PASOK is getting hard, finding it hard to get over with. Uh, and indeed, there is reform fatigue on behalf of parts of the government. I think there are clearly parts of the government that we may agree or disagree with, but they do not suffer from reform fatigue. Uh, they may not have been as successful in putting their uh, point of view forward. Uh, some fatigue has taken over, and I think there is going to be one yet more at Yet one more attempt to overcome the fatigue, whether it be successful or not, I don't know. Now, uh, the question is, so, the, as far as, so I'm repeating, the memorandum had, three, had two components. It was the fiscal consolidation with its macroeconomic uh, consequences, and, and there were the reforms. And I said where I think we, start, we stand on those three. The macro picture, relatively okay. Uh, or at least within what had been predicted. The fiscal picture, much more precarious. The reforms, almost at a standstill and only on paper, with the hope that some push will be made uh, for more successful implementation. Now, what were the flaws of the memorandum, at least from my point of view? From my point of view, the memorandum had two major flaws. One had to do with distribution. Uh, the burden of the adjustment was borne by those who were not particularly well off. There is a ridiculous argument that one hears time and again, uh, and in a kind of uh, cynical manner, if I may say, which is to say, we tax the poor because the poor are many. Uh, I think that's a ridiculous argument, uh, because there is a very simple answer to this. Indeed, the poor may be many, and uh, by poor I mean not particularly well off again. Uh, but 
this does not mean that you should tax them, or at least you should not, you should not tax them until first you've taxed the rich. Tax the rich first, and if there isn't enough, go and tax the poor. To say I tax the poor because there are too many, there are many of them and I need to tax them is a, is a, is, is a, it's an illogical argument. So, <coughs> sorry. So distribution is one issue. Who bears the cost of the reforms was very uneven, very unfair. Uh, one can explain part of it because of the time pressures, uh, but this situation must be addressed somehow at this point. The other, uh, and that's where I uh, want to raise a question both to Costas and to Nikos, and of course to the audience, is that there is a problem, there is, there is something that bothers with all these lists of reforms that we are talking about. Nobody, I fully agree, and nobody, I think, in his right mind would disagree and say that these reforms are not necessary. We need them if there is going to be growth uh, in the long run. What bothers me is the short run. That is, even if these reforms were, suppose the memorandum was implemented impeccably. Suppose the reforms were going ahead at full pace. I still don't see that they would, be effect, they would become effective quickly enough to pull Greece, to pull the country out of the recession that is going on right now. So something must be done for short-term output, and one cannot rely on the impact of these uh, reforms uh, to take effect. Uh, so this is, I want to leave with this as a question. I don't know the answer for it, uh, but uh, short-term increase in output and growth is what I think uh, must be discussed, uh, and that's where we stand. Thank you. resistance to reforms.
Conditionality and, uh, and, and restructuring. And one of the reasons uh, that uh, I think that this form of restructuring is important is exactly because it will alleviate the huge pressures in the short run. At the moment, there is uh, a huge uh, withdrawal of funds in order to service the debt. Now, it is, of course, absolutely right that we have to think of when that would be a good time to, uh, uh, to, to do this. And it is right that when you restructure, it's best that your uh, public finances are, are in order, because after all, it makes the, the whole agreement uh, much more credible. So perhaps, um, so, so perhaps, perhaps you know, the, the timing issues has to be, has to be uh, uh, carefully thought through, particularly since we still have support. Of course, this support are loans, they have to be paid back and serviced and so on. So ultimately, you know, even if time, even if some time goes back, we will have to deal with the issue. There will be a huge debt overhang and a huge servicing of interests, which is going to inhibit uh, any reform program. Uh, and that I believe, uh, I, I, I'm believing more and more. Uh, the, po the point is, is this: How do you get the Greek economy? And the, and the Greeks to accept the, these kind of radical reforms that are required to make the economy competitive, and, this, and how do you manage the short run? Uh, well, I think in order to do that, you have to address the huge uh, debt overhang. Now, the conditionality uh, through the SM might happen in, um, in a couple of years, but here we're, we're suggesting something much more structured, where uh, where specific reforms are agreed to up front. And, uh, and, uh, and, and these, of course, reforms, in some sense, build on the memorandum, but go deeper and address other issues, other long-term issues of the, for the health and the modernization of the, uh, of the economy. Of course, banks will need to be supported. So it, we have to recognize that we cannot let the Greek banking system uh, collapse. By Sorry? By well, effectively, yes. 
But you're not going to, well, they're not, they do not hold all the, they do not hold the entire Greek debt. They hold a small proportion of it. So, uh, so they, they will have to be supported uh, by that. Obviously, 50% uh, uh, might not end up being exactly 50%, but a lot of the debt is held by foreign banks, only a small proportion is held uh, by Greek banks. But uh, most of the foreign banks uh, will be paid uh, If we insist on doing that, yes. I mean, we know that uh, the, the amount of uh, loan from the IMF to the billion was calculated to be another 10 billion uh, euros. You know, just about to cover the liabilities of... Uh, so are you saying all the new debt is... is so you're saying all the new debts is going on the books of the Greek banks? Well, somebody's got completely wrong there. So uh, let's take the issue one by one. Uh, as far as the fatigue, the reform fatigue is concerned, uh, I think I made my point of view was that the fatigue was not. I made a distinction between fatigue by general population and fatigue by the politicians. I think the politicians have, are the first ones that experienced fatigue uh, pretty quickly. Uh, now, as far as the population is concerned, or, or general feeling towards reforms, one should not be naive about it. When you say that you read polls where everybody is in favor uh, of the reforms, uh, yes, they are in favor of the reforms for the other guys. It's not working? It is working, no? It's okay now? Okay, so I'm saying that uh, the polls which indi that indicate that the population, the general public, is in favor of the reforms, I'm afraid, uh, reflect the fact that when asked, people answer abstractly, they say, yes, I'm in favor of reforms. Uh, one only has to watch uh, the news programs when it comes to opening up the various professions, and they all say why they're pro they are all in favor of the professions opening up, except for theirs, because it has peculiarities and <coughs> particular features that don't refer to all the others. So I think this doesn't uh, reflect uh, much. Now, as far as the restructuring pressure is concerned, there is no pressure right now. We are not paying right now. We are receiving money right now. So I don't see that as far as the short run is concerned, structuring or restructuring is going to make any difference. For the medium run, I agree with you, this calculation should be done, okay? Uh, but as long as uh, the, the IMF and the European Union support the banks and they pay our debt, I don't think this is the issue to be concerned with. Now, um, to go back to the, uh, to the memorandum uh, and why this, uh, the, the measures that are necessary to kick off uh, growth were not discussed, I think that uh, it was one more instance of the IMF believing that uh, by some miracle the private sector would step in uh, and take up whatever place, whatever room has been vacated by the public sector and I'm not, I, I don't see it happening and I'm not convinced that it's going to happen. Uh, as far as measures that could be used to uh, generate an increase of output uh, in the short run, um, I think that the, the, the bind in which we find ourselves is that there is no way to do things that will increase productivity and generate output 
unless you're allowed to borrow. You know, somehow you have to convince people that it's, it's the one last time that we are borrowing, but of course, that's not very easy. Uh, uh, a friend of mine who does economic history told me that the kings of England uh, would convince Genoese bankers to lend the money to fight their wars by giving them the right to come and collect taxes themselves. Uh, of course, they would kick them out once the wars were over, but okay, at least in the short run, they would, they would keep the loan, and then they would come in and uh, collect uh, import and export duties. Uh, so they would, that is, I'm talking about earmarked taxes to pay back earmarked loans for specific activities. I think that's something that uh, could be discussed, but I understand it's, uh, it's exercised on paper, but I don't see anything else more concrete. When the IMF, in its memorandum, put in that uh, outlook was going to start decreasing again in 2011 or 2012, if one tried to find out why, uh, what, what, what feature of the model, what feature of the argument led to this upward turn, they simply put it in my hand. Uh, because they believed that the IMF, that the private sector would step in and take up the place that was vacated by the public sector. It was just it was a pure, it was a pure statement of faith and nothing else. Well, uh, when it comes uh, to, you know, to be implemented, uh, I can tell you uh, many people who are interested uh, to benefit from the earmarked loans, but I know very few people who can contribute uh, willingly to earmarked taxes. Uh, so uh, I think <laughs> we, we put the same problem again. I think something has been done exogenously to generate growth, but uh, I think that uh, uh, we discussed this uh, quite a bit uh, between ourselves. Now it's time to give the floor to discussion. Uh, please uh, identify yourself uh, when uh, you're given the microphone. And uh, we shall collect uh, three questions at a time to be answered uh, uh, by Professor McGee and Professor Paul Marhakis. Thank you, Wolfgang Piccoli from Eurasia Group. Um, none of you mentioned anything about privatization. That was a trick that Papandreou used in March to get the 1% discount. Didn't mention it because basically don't believe that much progress will be uh, done on that front. And secondly, on your restructuring scenario, uh, if we want to make it orderly, who's going to sustain these banks and whether you've got an idea how much money that will involve. And secondly, where is going Greece, to Greek, Greece find the money after imposing such a, such a strong air cut um, on the financing side. So just, no, I'm just trying to look after the post-restructuring scenario. Thank you. Yeah, Bernard Casey from Warwick University and the Hellenic Observatory. I wanted to talk about floodgates which could be opened um, and I take up some of the suggestions that Carsters made. I think one of the things one needs to be concerned about is actually who does own um, this Greek debt outside Greece to begin with, and an awful lot of that appears to be tucked into the commercial banks of Germany and France, according to what I see. And if Greece uh, does, in fact, uh, default or partly default, 
who is going to bear some of the costs of that? Now, I thought Costas was slightly cavalier in suggesting that that could happen. One of the reasons why the Germans have been so very resistant to um, allowing a default is because it then exposes their own banks to the kind of toxic assets which are actually buried away there, which they don't want to recognise. I also think that uh, Costas is perhaps a little cavalier about suggesting, well, we can sort out the holdings of the, uh, uh, of the Greek domestic banks because um, their holdings um, for themselves are large and if the Greek domestic banks are also threatening to default, that is going to have a knock-on outside Greece amongst banks which are related to them. I can think about banks, for instance, in Cyprus which are pretty big. The other floodgate which I'm also worried about um, opening is actually the floodgate that is associated with the pension reform which cost us um, proposed. I'm a pensions economist in my spare or main time, actually. And um, Costa sort of recognises, well, pension reform costs money. Um, moving to funded pension schemes is very expensive. There are things called transition costs, which people like me are always worried about. The fact that you know, you're taking in money into private accounts, but you've got to pay out money to current pensioners. Look at what happened at the December Council of Europe, where... A whole number of countries, nine countries I think, had been begging the European Council to take account of pension reform and could they relax the growth and the stability and growth pact conditions. And the Council said yes for a few of them. It refused the case to heavily indebted countries with heavy fiscal deficits. That's exactly what the situation that Greece is in. So they won't give any concessions on that if um, their latest decisions have any uh, have any precedence. So, two floodgates. Yes. Vasilis Martyrios from the Hellenic Observatory. I take the point that we need structural reforms. We need to reform many aspects of the, of the Greek economy, the Greek uh, society, but. Uh, what I want to ask you is about the, you know, going to the point about the short-run uh, solutions to, uh, to the problem. One of the things, uh, the, the proposal by Costa McGill was about having external conditionality. Up until a couple of years ago, we thought that EU conditionality doesn't really work and what we need is a crisis. I remember the conference in Yale talking about the external, there's no alternative kind of crisis effect. Uh, and now we're talking that you know, the crisis didn't work, we have reform fatigue in Greece, and we need, again, uh, conditionality. I'm very sceptical uh, about that. I, I want to, to bring to your attention that Greece does have a competitiveness problem, but over the last 15 years, it has been growing faster than any other country uh, in, in the EU outside Ireland, and it has been converging in terms of productivity with the EU average. So even with all the structural problems and deficiencies, we, we have been... Uh, quite successful in growing. So maybe the problem we're facing now is a problem that comes from the fiscal situation, so we need fiscal consolidation, but actually what we really have is a negative demand shock. And as we know from the old economics, supply-side problems are dealt with supply-side measures. Negative demand shocks require the effort, the fiscal stimulus. So is there a role for the EU and for the Greek government to pursue through the EU a fiscal stimulus in Greece? Many interesting questions. 
It is, I think, quite clear in my mind that if a restructuring takes place, some of the debt, will, some of the existing debt, will have to be uh, taken up from the banks, particularly the Greek banks, by uh, uh, the, the relevant EU authorities. So they will have to uh, raise funding in the international markets backed by the EU and they will have to inject capital in the Greek banks. There's no doubt about that. If they let the banks go in Greece, uh, that would be a, a, real, um, a real disaster. I have to, of course, look at the evolving numbers uh, that uh, Professor Christodoulakis uh, mentioned to see how much they are actually, uh, actually holding. All this uh, idea is predicated on the fact that however huge the Greek debt is for Greece, it's actually a pretty small uh, part of the of the, if you like, EU, EU GDP. Uh, so uh, I don't think it will be, a, it might be a political hard sell, but I don't think it's a particularly hard financial uh, issue for the EU to raise, um, uh, raise uh, funding from the open market to, uh, to support the banks. That's why I say it's too small to fail. Yes. The, on, the other hand, on the other hand, if you end up, so, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with Heraclius uh, that perhaps, you know, this is not the right time, but the time will come when we will have to deal with the fact that Greece will be paying 10% of its GDP on or more in interest. I couldn't agree more. I'm sure you'd agree, but I can address that this 10% is going to be statistics because of the risk strategy of market rates. No, I think, no, I'm taking a 6% rate. Yeah, but that's what he's computing. He's not computing 6%. Yes, 6%. He's computing 6%. Existing stock. And, and for the base rates to go down, the markets have to be convinced that Greece is solvent. Otherwise, they're never going to go down. So, um, okay, so, of course, uh, you know, whether you do it now or not, I agree with having huge influxes of money now, which, of course, are adding to the debt, uh, but whether we want to continue riding on that uh, till we get all the public finances in order and then, and then enter in this debate, I think at least behind the scenes, the EU and the Greek authorities will have to be dealing with what's going to happen one or two years down the road because with that huge debt overhang, we will be stuck. Now, this links in directly to the questions like of transitional costs, not only for pension reforms, but for the labor market and so on. And if you do have a massive debt overhang, of course you can't fund any transitional costs. On the other hand, a modern economy has to have a modern labor market, a modern welfare state, I believe in the welfare state. Uh, you have to have a proper employment insurance scheme, and all these are upfront costs, upfront transition costs that are extremely important. And, uh, and when you, you pay a, a massive proportion of your tax revenues to fund interest payments, you cannot, uh, you cannot manage that, uh, that, very, that very well. Uh, there was a question about conditionality. Well, you know, uh, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it, it's hard. But um, if we do not have conditionality, we cannot have restructuring. Nobody will ever accept uh, a restructuring of the Greek debt unconditionally, uh, if anything, because of the, of, the, of, the, uh, of the history and the political economy in Greece. Uh, so uh, we need to set up a proper incentive scheme, I think, the fact that the threat of a return to the previous debt situation will be there uh, might be quite a strong incentive. Are we suffering from a demand shock? Temporarily, yes, but fundamentally, the problems of the Greek economy is um, uh, our, our supply side, and that's why we, are not been, we have not been able 
to accommodate the very large uh, demand shock, or if you like, we've accommodated worse than any of the other Western countries that have been um, hit by the financial crisis. Yes, so we did mention, you say why we didn't mention uh, privatizations. Yeah, for my case, I can say it because I forgot. Uh, but maybe yes exactly yes if you believe it yes exactly so maybe maybe the fact that we forgot indicates something okay uh, by the way I, I heard that the, the rate of return on public property in Greece the return to the state uh, is 0.02 percent so, so there is probably some uh, money to be made. So, I don't know. I think we answered most of the questions, or Costas answered the questions. There is one thing that bothers me about this: all these stories about competitiveness and the fact that uh, Greece is in the debt situation, which it is because it has been falling behind because of its lack of competitiveness. I think this argument makes no sense to me. If you are not competitive, you don't produce and you don't eat. It doesn't mean that you borrow in order to do it. These are two separate issues. So what does it mean? We are not productive, competitive some... When one starts getting involved in this type of discussion, you heard words like competitiveness I never heard of in, when I was doing academic economics. Now I learned what it is. I'm not sure I understand exactly what it is, but uh, why does it explain in any sense the debt situation in which Greece finds itself? If you are not productive, you don't sell, you don't eat. The fact that you borrow in order to eat, it comes from these confused notions of not understanding that market is clear, that there is supply, there is demand, and there are budget constraints. Okay, so yes, Greece is falling behind competitiveness. The problem is that it borrows to it beyond its means. Okay, now whether, that's the end of the story. Uh, and as far as the banks are concerned, yes, I think part of the package that would see through, that would see Greece through that situation would involve uh, transfers to banks that, uh, to, to, to hold them up, otherwise the, to the collapse of credit uh, in the country that would be disastrous. As part of the package that would have to be negotiated for the situation to go on for the other three years. Thank you very much. Thanks. My name is Ian Beck from LSE. Last week, uh, Larry Summers referred to a expansionary fiscal contraction as being oxymoronic. Oh, some of us might even take off the oxy and just call it moronic. But there are many finance ministers who seem to believe in it. Is there any prospect of an expansionary fiscal contraction in Greece? First question. You're in the panel, not me. <laughs> Second, second question. In terms of the, the standard, standard uh, Keynesian national income identity, we know that government spending is going down. We're dubious about whether net exports can come to the rescue, which leaves consumption and investment as the way to get some growth coming back. To get consumption and investment going, you'd have to have the private sector borrowing more than it does at present. Is there any way out through private sector borrowing? Thank you. Uh, 
to Neil McMurdo from the uh, Treasury. Um, I think both of you agreed with the concept that growth is central to the debt dynamics and, and secondly, that structural reforms are central to getting the growth. Um, where I noticed the biggest area of, of, of disagreement was um, whether a debt restructuring helps or hinders that. Um, I just wondered if you could expand on, on that point. Um, so would a debt restructuring in the current uh, environment help or hinder the pursuit of structural reforms uh, to, to improve growth prospects? Good evening. Uh, my name is Georges Barzoukas. I'm a student here at the LSE. I would like to ask <coughs> mainly Professor McGear, because you've talked, uh, you've talked about um, reforms. Do you think that it's mainly a problem of uh, lack of political leadership rather than reform fatigue? Because everyone knows reforms are required. There are some social groups which are against it. But Greeks do know that reforms are needed. Do you think that the problem is mainly with not having uh, politicians which are up to the task and uh, want to take the risk to go about these reforms? Let me take the question in reverse. It may be politicians. I don't know how to answer uh, I'm saying that you're, you're saying that the politicians are not making a convincing case uh, to the public. To over yes, that's for sure. <laughs> now, as far as the, um, the restructuring, I don't see the connection between the, the restructuring and the, and the reforms right now. My problem was the short run versus the longer run uh, uh, impact of the reforms. Now, uh, I don't know if Costas, Costas thinks that the restructuring, if it was done, would uh, hasten or defeat the reforms. I, I don't even know how to, uh, how to think uh, of this problem. And by the way, the fact that there's German opposition to the restructuring, this is not clear because there are voices coming out of Germany which are in favor of haircuts and which are explicit about uh, the private sector uh, paying a bit, at least some, of the price of the restructuring. The story that one hears is that German politicians who want to teach a lesson uh, to their banks and to the private sector not to repeat in the future the mistake of lending thoughtlessly to potentially uh, irresponsible uh, borrowers. So it is not clear that, uh, or at least that there is unanimity uh, in Germany against the restructuring for which, with, with private sector uh, uh, participation. So. 
Well, uh, Machiavelli once said in, in the Prince that um, uh, the, the reformer always has the problem that the, uh, that the vested interests are always organized against the reforms, while those who will gain from uh, so the, those who will gain from the reforms are usually not organized. You could interpret as saying that that you need uh, leadership to be able to. Uh, uh, to organize the, the beneficiaries of, uh, of the reform against the vested interests. I kind of uh, agree with uh, the statements that have been made that uh, perhaps reforms are broadly popular, uh, but um, uh, in, in a vague sort of sense. But when it comes down to specifics, uh, it's not clear to me that that kind of popular support uh, exists and that the understanding uh, of the necessity of reforms exists. In some sense, there's a complete absence of, uh, of civil society and... Uh, and economic journalism in, uh, in Greece that, uh, that puts this kind of debate forward. Personally, I believe that debt restructuring, at least in the uh, time, the, time the right way, would help the reform uh, uh, effort for two reasons. First of all, it would, um, it would release some of the pressure from public finances to fund transitional costs of, re of, uh, of a reform program. And, um, and secondly, of course, it would, uh, it would come with these conditionalities of the external pressure uh, uh, for, such, uh, for such reforms. So you're kind of creating a mechanism to compel uh, the, the Greek political uh, world to, um, to proceed with these reforms uh, in, uh, in, and, and make them at the same time more feasible in terms of funding. Um, <clears throat> I, think, I think that's about to cover it. Yeah. Minor comment on uh, reforms. Uh, I think that uh, during the last year there have been some reforms taking place in Greece. There has been a major social, uh, social security reform. There have been some reforms liberalizing uh, professions, at least to some extent, somehow. But still, out of these reforms, we didn't see growth coming out. So, the reforms, how can we expect growth to come out? Out of structural reforms, growth and government take the next. Well, uh, one year passed. One year passed. One year is, is, is a long time in the politics. Uh, so yeah, but the situation, the, the situation in Greece is extremely the situation in Greece extremely uncertain. So even if you would expect you know, an, some kind of effect within the you know couple of years, uh, because of the overall uncertainty, um, I don't think that's a particularly attractive time to invest in Greece. Oh, it's not viewed as such. Uh, now let's uh, continue with questions. Hello. My name is uh, Yoros Saravelos. Uh, I work here. Uh, I work in London. Uh, it seems to me while we've been focusing a lot on questions of economics and finance and Professor Megu, you've been mentioning uh, all the numbers, uh, the problem at the end of the day is institutional, uh, both at a European level and at the national level. At a European level, the problem is whether German taxpayers, Finnish taxpayers, will continue to want pain. And even if you have a restructuring, you've said we will need to have injections into banks, um, both Greek banks as well as German banks. Uh, so my, my question is, to what extent do you think they will be willing to do that? Because if you look at, say, what happened in the Finnish elections last month, public opinion has moved completely the other way with the true Finns 
nationalistic party voting against um, Finland supporting reforms. Uh, so I see that as a big problem at a European level. Uh, on a Greek level, the, it, again, it's institutional problems. Everyone knows the reforms that need to happen, uh, but they're not happening, and we've touched upon possible causes, leadership, interest groups. And I'd like to direct this question to Professor Christodoulakis because you've been in Greek government. So with your experience, why do you think, why is there institutional failure? Why do we not get these reforms, and how can they be overcome? Do we need to change the Greek constitution? Do we need to have someone externally come in and tell us what to do? What do you think the binding constraint is to, to make these changes? Thanks. Thank you. Nikos Kantikopoulos from the Central Office of Information, UK government. Um, my question is uh, around growth and uh, restoring growth. And you asked the question, how, how can we see growth? Why don't we see it so far? And the issue I want to raise is... Um, the fact that for the last 10 years there's been significant disparity between the salaries um, of an average working man or average family and the prices, the cost of living, um, either that be purchasing a new car, a new TV, or just going to the supermarket. And ever since the euro got introduced, prices kept going up, uh, the cost of living kept going up, things started getting rounded up, the prices got getting rounded up, and uh, for the last 10 years, um, I've, I've seen uh, salaries remaining static, pretty much. Um, so my question is, is this problem insurmountable? Um, can, can we expect growth where there's such a large disparity between the buying power of an average family? Uh, yeah, okay, thank you. I'm an alumnus of the school. My question is about uh, Greece's Euro membership, and uh, I would like to ask what you think about the proposal made by um, Kenneth Barber, among others, that Greece leave the Eurozone, at least temporarily, uh, in order to regain competitiveness by an external devaluation, when apparently an internal devaluation uh, is not, uh, not quite possible, as we heard about the reforms are not being made and so on. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Uh, so this is Artalotis, European Institute and Healing Observatory. Uh, going back to um, two of the questions that were recently raised, uh, I wonder, although you are economists, uh, I wonder if you think that the main problem in Greece is economic or political. Is it the problem of the economy and the public policy or a problem of the political system, the people who are in the political system, how you get into the political system, who funds you to get into the political system and the public policy that you produce because of you belonging to that political system. In other words, do we need economic reforms or we need constitutional, legal, uh, institutional also uh, reforms? Thank you. I'm, I'm, uh, since this is a summing up round, um, I don't understand. It seems to me that whenever we cannot say something clever about the question, we say it's institutional or political. I mean, when you can make a sharp statement and say something that is exactly the point, then you say it's economics. Now, to say it's institutional or it's political, it means we don't know what to say about it. And that's, that's my feeling about it. Uh, so I don't know. This, this statement could say it's an institutional problem means we don't understand it. Uh, now, and if we don't understand it, there isn't much we can say about it. 
I think that this question of Greece leaving the euro for a while indeed was discussed, but it was discussed at a very uh, theoretical level. I don't think it was ever uh, discussed seriously. Uh, and from my point of view, it would not be a solution to the problems, but Yeah, I kind of, I kind of agree. I mean, uh, what does it mean to leave the euro? What happens to the debt? Does it remain in uh, the remaining euros and then shoots up by about fifty or sixty percent, uh, or do we kind of drachmaize it and uh, and default on the debt as well? Uh, both of these. Uh, yes, <laughs> of course. So you either it's like either a complete default or uh, or you you suddenly even higher uh, levels of debt. So I don't think that's really on the agenda. It's not also on the. Uh, on the political agenda. Um, yes, I think um, I think I think the other. Yes, will it happen? Can it happen? Well, uh, you know, the, the the point is that I think, as I tried to explain before, there are sometimes that both debtors and creditors can gain from a restructuring of uh, of debt. So, if both parties are going to be convinced that that's going to be beneficial. Uh, then, yes, it can happen. There I have a question, though. I can understand this when it's a large country. So, I understand that the creditors of Germany okay, might gain from the German economy taking off and being able to pay back. But when it's a very small country that is involved, it is hard to see what the gain would be. The, the argument works both ways. Because the, both the, the losses from the, from the restructuring and the gains are small. So I'm not quite completely sure how it cuts. They are small, but they are not affected by what you do. Anyway, I think they are. Okay. <laughs> well, I think that uh, the issue of uh, delaying the reforms is becoming very critical. And uh, to explain it, it has many aspects. Uh, I can tell you from my experience in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, uh, at that uh, period, uh, there were two uh, things that, uh, which are not present now. First of all, it was the prospect of joining EMU, and uh, therefore the cost of money and uh, uh, <coughs> fiscal stability and uh, monetary stability uh, was prompting new investment. So uh, the sense was that everybody had something to gain from the reforms. So it was quite easy to persuade the, both the outsiders and the insiders to accept the reforms. Uh, such a situation does not exist today. And uh, even more so, I think that uh, what uh, Professor Paul Marhaik said uh, in his speech is also true. Uh, the memorandum started uh, to uh, start the measures of uh, fiscal <coughs> rehabilitation from the less well-off. So it created uh, uh, a category which was opposing any further measures which were taken. I think the situation would be very different if reforms had started from uh, public utilities, for example, as the government tries to do now, or uh, reforms were started uh, by privatizing uh, very expensive uh, public entities, and uh, the revenues were used in order to reduce debt, I think that this would have created 
a more positive feeling in the society. But the sequence of reforms was the other way around. So first, uh, the government, I think, created a lot of opposers in uh, fiscal uh, measures. So now, when it comes to the core of reforms, it has too few allies to, uh, to pursue the reforms. So the, the situation is, is very difficult. Uh, that's why I believe that uh, it is uh, growth which may act as a catalyst for further reforms. Otherwise, we may get stuck into a situation where reforms do not take place because of the recession, and the recession remains because of the lack of reforms. This is a very dangerous situation. Uh, there's a last question which uh, we take and then Um, Peter O'Kane, I can probably tell from my accent, I come from Ireland. Um, leaving aside the technicalities, which I can, uh, which I would regard as very plausible, I think maybe there's a need to look more widely and politically. First of all, what happens in Greece will have big precedence for Portugal and Ireland. Maybe not for Spain, but certainly for Ireland. I think uh, you mentioned Portugal, but not for Ireland. And the other thing is that the key political player in, in Europe is Germany. So maybe this debate ought to be held in Munich or in Berlin, and maybe it should be enforceable in German courts rather than uh, English courts. Secondly, or sorry, thirdly, I kind of wonder, I, politically in Germany, the governing parties are very, per, uh, are very weak. Merkel is even weaker post the nuclear debacle. And I wonder whether Germany would be more willing to consider some deal if countries like Ireland, like um, uh, Greece, left the Eurozone. So they didn't have to do it again. I also, I'm, a, I'm sort of, in Ireland the opinion is that it will have to restructure, and it is reforming. It does have reasonable political consensus for the reforms because the cuts are being seen as fair, more fair than in the UK, also more severe, but also more fair than in the UK. In that situation, um, Ireland's very conscious that the IMF interest rates are less than the EU interest rates. And there's been no discussion about IMF. So maybe this debate should also be held in Beijing, as well as Munich and, and Berlin. But whatever the, the economic technicalities, at the end of the day, it will be a political decision in a, in a few key capitals, such as Washington, Beijing, and Berlin. And sort of your, your comments on that, and what can we do to actually influence opinion in those. And maybe on the timing, final point, we need to look at the German electoral cycle. That, I think, my recollection is that is three years down the road for the federal elections in Germany. So any restructuring should, should take place after that. So this brings us back nicely to the timing issue. Uh, so uh, t timing things for at a point when when uh, German politicians seem a bit more um, assertive might be, um, might be a good idea. Uh, now, Ireland, I was kind of uh, surprised a bit when uh, the public sector decided to take up all private debt. Uh, so that, I, think, uh, it's quite a, I think it's quite a different situation from, uh, uh, from Greece and, uh, and Portugal because they, they had absolutely no reason to underwrite all, uh, all private loans. And perhaps, perhaps that, that um, incident 
bodes badly for uh, any Greek negotiations because it seems to um, be motivated by, uh, by this idea that uh, bondholders uh, never lose. And um, uh, so, so that's, uh, that, that's an issue we have to uh, uh, look at. Uh, but yes, I mean, uh, obviously the cooperation of, uh, of, uh, of Germany and, uh, and the other uh, strong Eurozone uh, countries are key because in order for what I suggested to work, they would have to take up some of the, uh, some of the debt, uh, principally from there and the Greek banks, and, uh, and basically uh, 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 forgive it in, uh, in stages. discussion could continue for a long time because there are many issues and many questions to be answered but uh, I'm afraid that uh, we have to close now uh, I'd like to thank uh, speakers, Professor McGee and Professor Wolmarkakis I'd like to thank very much uh, the Hellenic Observatory and uh, Professor Featherstone for giving us the opportunity to state this debate and uh, of course I'd like to thank you very much for your patience and uh, attention you paid to this very important and uh, critical debate we had. I just wish that uh, in a year's time we shall be here again, uh, but uh, having to answer some more optimistic questions, uh, supposing that we shall have some growth and how this growth can be extended, not invented. Thank you very much.